2, 17 to 29 today. Uh, but just as a bit of a recap um, from last week, we spoke on Romans chapter 2, 1 to 16, or Lewis preached from that text. And one of the main parts of that passage is to show that God is impartial. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't show favoritism. And in regards to his judgment, now he does, when he addresses the Jews, he does say in his impartiality, he does go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, why to the Jew first? Well, the Jew was given the oracles of God, as we'll even see in next week's text and mentioned in today's text. But here, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, we're going to see, they're transgressors, and their Jewishness gives them no privileges over the Gentiles on the day of judgment. Just as condemning the unrighteous person and possessing the Mosaic law will not permit Jews to escape God's judgment, like we just covered, now today we're going to focus on how the teaching of the Mosaic law and possessing physical circumcision will not count for nothing on that day of judgment. So Paul is now going to focus on the failure of the Jews to fulfill their vocation of being a light to the Gentiles. And on top of that, he will additionally show that physical circumcision is not the defining boundary of the people of God. So this whole section, chapter 2, verse 1, to 320 that we're going to cover, this entire section is to show that the Jew is also subject to God's wrath. That the Jew is also subject to God's wrath. If any of you are note takers and hear them, the main idea of this text, this is the main idea from the text. True faith, true faith is a matter of obedience, not just knowledge. True faith is a matter of obedience, not just knowledge. It is a change of heart. Not just following outward practices. That makes one right before God. Again, true faith is a matter of obedience, not just knowledge. It is a change of heart, not just following outward practices. That makes one right before God. So looking down at our text, let me read for us verse 17 to 20. He goes on and he opens up this paragraph, contrasting what he said before. And he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He gives us two lists here. We see in verse 17 to 18, one list, and verse 19 to 20, another list. Let's look through that first list. So he's, he gives a condition. If you call yourself a Jew, so obviously they are calling themselves Jews, but what he points out to them, you call yourself a Jew, you say you rely upon the law, or that they lean upon the law. But then in addition to leaning upon and relying upon the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, he also says they boast in God. That's who they boast in. They boast in God. But additionally, they say they, they know his will. They have knowledge of God's will. We know God's will from his word. So these Jews boast in that. They know God. They know his will. And not only that, they approve what is excellent. Or some of your translations might, might say something about discernment. Discern what is important. Right? They know how to look at the Bible, or look at the Old Testament specifically, given their context, and decide more of the difficult issues. You just use discernment on how to handle everyday issues. And why? Well, what's the whole reason for that? Because you are instructed from the law. They've been taught. They know God's word. 
That's the point. They have knowledge. But there's a problem. There's a problem. We're going to get to that. But if you turn with me in your Bibles, keep your finger in Romans to Micah, the book of Micah. There's a comparison here that's quite interesting that I believe Paul is also using in Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. I want to read this to you. Now, rulers and prophets are denounced here in this passage. And what happens here is Micah is calling out the people of Israel. Notice what they say in the way it relates to our text today. Verse 9, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, or leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Notice this next line. Yet they lean on the Lord, or rely on the Lord. They lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They don't fear the wrath of God. They know the law. They know it is literally what the text is saying. But they don't fear God's wrath. They think they're just fine. Verse 12 of Micah 3. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. So looking back to our text. They say these things about themselves. They rely on the law. They lean on the law. Yet, we're going to see... They don't practice what they preach. Continuing on to the next list, if you look at verse 19 through 20, he says, and if you are sure that you yourself are, now let's stop there real quick. He's, he, he's saying, if you're really persuaded, are you absolutely sure? If you're really sure of this, and you're persuaded that you are, no, no, he lays out what these things that they might be sure of that they are, which he's going to soon dismantle, you, that you are a guide to the blind, that you're a light to those in, who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. So, as we know from the book of Exodus, that the people of God, they were called to be his treasured possession to the nations. In Exodus 19 specifically, if you look at verse 5 and 6, this is what he says concerning Israel being his possession and their purpose in the world. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Where? Among all peoples. That's Gentiles. Why? For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is who they're supposed to be. They suppose, they're sure that, hey, we're a guide to the blind. We're a light to those in darkness. We are this for you, God. We are this. They're supposed to be an instructor to the foolish. Makes you think back to Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, the Gentiles. The, the wrath of God was upon them because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. They're to be instructors to them, to, to teach them what God's word says, but also a teacher to children. Now, it says they have in the law the full presentation of, or the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So yes, they have all that, according to what they think. But it's all up here. 
And we're about to see how that's a problem. Look down at your Bible with me. Verse 21, the second point here, that Paul reveals their failure to keep the law by pointing out their hypocrisy. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Let's stop there. So these people, God's chosen people, who God is impartial toward when it comes to his judgment, they were designated the responsibility to be a light to the world. And here, he's saying, you then, you teach others, but don't think about just everyone outside of you. What about yourself? Oftentimes, you might listen to a sermon, and you might hear a point of application. And you might be thinking, oh, that's for someone else. Or you might be teaching something in Sunday school, or or to your child, and you might be thinking, they need to hear this. But often, we also need to be taught of ourselves. If we're teaching something, we need to hold ourselves to that same standard. See, that's the problem. Look at the verse 1 of the same chapter. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you judge, you judge, practice the very same things. They don't realize that they're hypocritical. They're blinded by their hypocrisy. So they should, they're teaching others, but they're not teaching themselves. They preach against stealing, but they steal they say one month is not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. Now, I know that when we think of what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, they say that, Jesus says, and it's true, that um, if you look upon a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, Paul's not necessarily referencing that. There, there could be actual, actual cases, and probably is, that Jews were actually committing adultery, and they were actually stealing, not just referring to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. So these Jews were greatly hypocritical. And we even read in Micah, you see the hypocrisy of the kings and the priests and the prophets, Right? They, were, they were doing wicked things. Well, here the Jews were also doing wicked things. Then additionally, verse, the, 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 verse 22, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, this is likely in reference to what, what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 7.25 uh, in, the, in the idea of idols. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. What do I mean by this? Well, the Jews, they're, they're saying that they detest idolatry, but what's likely happening in the background here in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, tons of gods that they worshipped, they're saying they detest idolatry, but they likely were profiting off of selling idols or being involved in at least the marketplace of idolatry. And things that also, he says, were stolen from Gentile temples. So it's a big problem with them. We think of Jesus looking to the Pharisees, and he, and he calls them hypocrites. He says, do whatever they tell you. He doesn't say they're wrong in what they're saying. Do whatever they tell you, right here in Matthew 23, 2-3, but not the works they do. They preach the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We know that the law is good. It reveals our sin. But Jesus looking at them, says, he says, for they preach, but do not practice. They preach, but do not practice. It's, it's really hard and hurtful when we see leaders in the church and they preach one thing and they practice another. But can I tell you, every preacher is guilty of that. 
to some degree or another. Every leader, every person is guilty of that, right? We have ideals. We have things we strive toward. We want to be better. We want to be more like Christ, but we all often fail. Uh, Solomon says in, in Proverbs that the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again, right? We fall. We make mistakes. Everyone does. But the difference is, how do you look at your mistakes? You teach others. Do you not teach yourself, is what Paul says to the Jews? Yes, you need to teach others, but you also need to be teaching yourself. So the difference is, are you someone who recognizes your own faults and admits them and grows in them, or do you only look at the faults of others and point those out? I think that's a very vivid and clear application we can gather from this text. So we see here, in addition, they boast in the law. Well, what does that mean? They're proud of their obedience. They're proud. They're like, look at me. I can do this. Look, I I am doing, I'm fulfilling the law. But in the pride of their obedience, they're truly dishonoring God and breaking the law. We see here in in the rest of this verse, you, verse 23, you boast, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Some of your translations might have as a question. And, and, and different translations debate over that one being the fifth rhetorical question here in this little section. But we see here, if, if, even if it's a question, do you, do you who boast in the law, you, what you do is you dishonor God by breaking the law. They dishonor him. That's why he gives his biblical proof in the next passage, uh, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 5. He says, for, which is to explain what he just said, for, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, blasphemed, you don't hear that often in our culture today, but the word blaspheme literally means to insult God, to bring about dishonor and insulting God. So when someone says that's blasphemous, well, you're insulting God. When someone takes the Lord's name in vain, that is blasphemy. And so we see here the name of God. The name of God represents his character, who he is. We, we, there's many names for God in the Old Testament. Wonderful names that reflect on his character and the things that he's done for his people. And so that name is to be represented to the nations. Either he's supposed to be a light, the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, but they're blind. They don't see that they're being a problem themselves. They're dishonoring God. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. It's his proof. So it, it, when you look at the book of Isaiah in this section, and maybe why he's quoting it. Um, why would he be quoting this? Well, they do what the Gentiles do, right? Re- referring back to 2.1. They're judging others, but they need to be applying that same standard to themselves. They are failing to do the work that God called them to, to represent his name among the nations. And from in Isaiah 40 to 66, you're going to see the people are in exile because of their sin, and thus the oppression of the Israelites by nations shouldn't be distinguished from Israel's sins. The the ultimate fulfillment of the curse of the law was to be thrown into exile, that they would be separated from the land that God had promised them and would be under judgment. They were in sin. So, So Paul seems to be making a correlation here. These Jews, they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the fact that while they might have received the oracles of God, they are just as much under God's wrath as the Gentiles. They don't get it. And thinking of Paul in the context of Romans back in chapter 1, what is his desire here for the nations, for the Gentiles? Well, 1 verse 5, he talks about through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith 
for the sake of his name among all the nations. For the sake of his name among all the nations. He wants the obedience of faith. He doesn't just want intellectual assent to faith. That's the problem. He wants obedience of faith, to walk in that faith. We know he's eager to reach the Gentiles. And the Jews here, they're missing an opportunity. He says in chapter 113, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but this far I've been prevented. Why? Why does he want to come? In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation. It was also an obligation for Israel. They didn't get it. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, those who were supposed to be instructing the foolish. The Jews don't get it. So Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. They need Christ. They need the gospel. The Jews failed to be what God, who God called them to be. Yet they boasted as if they were completely fine. They judged as though they were righteous and they were not. They relied on their outward expressions of their faith and thought that that was righteous. But we're going to see it's not. And for our third point, for verses 25 to 29, it's a matter of the heart, not of outward covenantal signs. It's a matter of the heart, not of outward covenantal signs. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So they believe that the sign of circumcision is protection against God's wrath. Because since they had that sign, they're part of the covenant. And they think they're fine. And and he's bringing this up to them to tell them, well, no, you're not. Because yes, it's a value if you obey the law. But guess what? You haven't obeyed the law. You're not teaching yourself. You're committing adultery. You're stealing. You're robbing temples. You boast in the law, but you dishonor God. There's no way that you have kept the law. They haven't kept it. They have failed to keep the law. So what does that mean, the result? Well, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's he trying to say? What you've been really depending on reveals that you're really uncircumcised, which to them, that's like, what? You're uncircumcised? That you're not part of the people of God if you're not circumcised. So in a way, he's playing that back on them and saying, look, you're not really part of the people of God. So if you look in Jeremiah chapter 9, in Jeremiah chapter 9, We often refer to that passage in verses uh, 23 and 24, a very popular passage, uh, which I even have quoted many times as I've done 1 Corinthians with our students. It's a great passage. Uh, It says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let let him who boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's a popular passage. It's a good passage. But look at the rest of this this passage at the end of chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. I guess they forgot to read Jeremiah 9. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. Their heart isn't circumcised. Their heart isn't changed. 
Going back to Deuteronomy, this has been part of God's plan all along. Deuteronomy, it literally means, it's deuteros namos, it's two Greek words, it means the second giving of the law. Had to be given a second time, why? Because the, the first generation perished in the wilderness. They were not allowed to enter into the promised land. So now, Moses is giving this sermon, which is Deuteronomy, again, for the people of Israel before they go in the promised land, the, the, the younger generation. And they, they haven't been circumcised, they haven't actually practice Passover. They actually do that once they cross the Jordan out of obedience and faith to God. But you'll see here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that circumcision of the heart has always been the focus for God here. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. God has always wanted heart change. He did not just merely give him rituals to practice. The rituals were always pointing to something deeper. An inner truth, an inner reality here. And we see here, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, which we just heard last week in Romans 2, 11. God is impartial. So God is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name shall you swear. He is your praise. So going back to our text in Romans chapter 2, he continues to make his case, right? We see here, it's okay, circumcision is a value if you obey the law, but you've broken it, so you're uncircumcised in your heart. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So what's his point? It's not about the outward. It's, and, and now he's not actually saying there is an uncircumcised person who kept the law, because we, we know the only person who's kept the law is Jesus, but he's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point that their outward symbol, it doesn't mean anything if the heart's not changed, if the heart isn't circumcised. That's his point. Then, verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The written code is, is, is a way for him to say the word of God, the scriptures. They have that, but what are they doing? They, they, they failed to keep it. So this imaginary, uncircumcised person who would keep the law, this person who doesn't share the same outward sign, but they, they keep it, what do we see here? They would be the one to condemn them. Now notice the future tense of this. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will, and the, but he who keeps the law will condemn you. Will, the, the tense of that is future. He's pointing toward the day of judgment. The wrath of God is the focus here. The wrath of God, the judgment of God is the focus here. And then here in verse 28, 
he gets further into this uh, passage, and he, he once again addresses them using the word Jew. For no one is a Jew, which he used at the very beginning of verse 17, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So to even follow Paul's point in Galatians, which they're really helpful books to study alongside each other to understand one another better. But in Galatians chapter 5, for instance, Paul says in verse 2 to 6 of chapter 5, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why? These Gentiles are being pressured. They're being pressured toward circumcision as a means to be justified in the law, which we can tell from Romans they think their circumcision and their, their knowledge of God is enough. It's not. But Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage of, to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith. That's how. Through the Spirit, by faith. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul is trying to make a point. It's always been about faith. The Jews got it wrong. They got it wrong here. Circumcision is only a value if you're perfect and you obey the law, but they've broken the law. They've committed adultery. They've stolen. They, they've robbed temples. They're not even learning themselves. They're focusing on the outward, not what God is doing inwardly. It's a matter of the heart. As, as Anna read for us in, in Colossians chapter 2, it, it says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Okay, that's not physical he's talking about. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh, like putting off the foreskin, by how? By the circumcision of Christ. Christ put his flesh on the cross. He died on the cross. He was cut off for us. He died in our place. And he, Paul continues to lay this out. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And notice how Paul even labels these people, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what Christ has done for us. The Jews weren't relying on it. They were making judgments, and their judgments were all looking at the outward, they weren't looking at the inward. Notice, inwardly, verse 29, it's, it, it's supposed to be a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man. You're not to look and boast in the law with all your buddy, your Jew buddies, and you're saying, hey, we, we're, we're all following the law, but look at those evil Gentiles. Wait, you're supposed to be a light to them. The Jews didn't get it. So Paul here, it's not about the praise of man. It's not about coming to church Sunday and say, hey, okay, we saw you at church Sunday, you're good to go. It's not about checking off, a, I, I've, I've been in God's word every day. 
Let me show everyone that I do that. Those are all important things. Even the rituals were important to God, but it starts at the heart. It's easy to go through the motions. I've gone through the motions. I probably will go through the motions again. But to say, we can't focus on our outward self. We must start inside. We must start with the heart. God wants to change our hearts. And here with the Jews, they didn't get that. So physical circumcision was important in the Old Testament law, no doubt. But even in the Old Testament, it wasn't the outward that was the first priority. And we'll see here, actually, I want to close by focusing on Psalm 50. Really quickly, Psalm 50. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, verse 7 through 18, illustrates this well in the Old Testament, what God desires of his people, what God desires of you and me. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, he can do all the sacrifices he wants. Yeah, sure, they're doing the sacrifices, but they got their focus wrong. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In other words, I'm not doing, you're not doing this for me because I need it, is what God's trying to communicate. He can, if he needs something, he'll get it himself. He's self-sufficient. That's an illustration he's trying to give. So verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Be thankful. And perform your vows. Do, notice that, perform your vows. It's doing to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. Wow. Stealing and adultery are confronted in the book of Romans, chapter 2, and it's, it's, it's similarly here. The people of God did not love God. The people who were, sorry, the, people, the Jews, the people who were called to be God's light to the Gentiles, the leaders of the blind, instructors to the foolish, they had failed in that way. What did God want? Thanksgiving. In Romans 1, he talks about how, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, so they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the state of every human being who rejects God. We know God exists. We know God exists. We don't honor him and we don't give thanks to him. That messes up our thinking. And these Jews were in the same boat as the Gentiles that Paul was condemning in Romans 1. They were in the same exact boat. They didn't think it, but Paul is showing them. So, which we'll hear next week in Romans 3, you might think the Jews might have thought they had an advantage. And to a degree they did, but then Paul points out they didn't. And in, in 3.1, it's, it's then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So they had that advantage, sure, 
But look at verse 9 of chapter 3. He says what? We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. They're all under sin. They're all under God's just judgment and wrath. In verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Paul is unfolding. He's trying to show through the book of Romans here that everyone is on equal scales and that we all need God's salvation. If it, it, it doesn't matter if you have the word of God. If you're not changed in your heart, you're still under God's wrath. The Pharisees, Jesus looked at them and said, you are whitewashed sepulchers. Inward, you're, you're, you're dead. You're filled with dead bones. On the outside, you look clean. I know that that was the case for me as a 12 and 13 year old. Had it, hadn't trusted Christ. Thought I had. I was a good kid. Good kid. But I had a wicked heart and I needed to be saved. And I remember gripping the pew on evening services on Sunday night when they would sing, I surrender all, and think I'm not going to surrender. But then know my conscience and the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin, realizing that I was still under God's wrath and judgment. It didn't matter that my parents were Christians. It didn't matter that I went to church and I attended all the events. It didn't matter. What mattered is I was still under God's wrath. It's not about outward. It's about what's going on inward. Friend, are you today under God's wrath? Have you thought all along, I'm a believer, but really underneath it all, you're not? That you are still under God's wrath, that you think you're relying on your works. Hey, if you rely on works of the law, you will not be declared righteous. You will not be justified before God. It's, it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. And singing about it this morning, this wonderful song choices, Luke and Laramie, just all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Is that your anthem today? All I have is Christ? If not, let it be today. Let that be your anthem today. The Jews judged others, but they did not judge themselves. Do you judge others and not judge yourself rightly? We're all under God's sin and uh, all under God's wrath because of our sin. We're all under God's condemnation. So let obedience start at the heart. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, having opened your word, declared it, knowing that now it is a time to respond. Lord, may our response right now be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you search the inner man. You know what's going on in each of our minds. You know our state before you, whether we've truly repented and trusted in Christ. Some of us maybe on that day might say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not um, do mighty works in your name? But as Jesus goes on in Matthew's gospel, depart from you, workers of iniquity. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Lord, let it not be said of anyone this day that they rely on their works, that they think they're merely good people. We are all wicked and depraved in heart. But God, you in Christ 
send your son to give us a new heart, to take the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So God, I pray that we would realize that, Lord, you want to make us good because you are good. You want to make us alive because we were dead. You want to make us like you. You want us to share in your holiness. So God, we who are unrighteous and unholy, God, we, we praise you that you want to invite us and bring us into your kingdom. For anyone in here who has been relying on their outward flesh, God, I pray that you would convict them of their sin and they would respond today to trust in you. For maybe a believer who knows the gospel and has walked faithfully in it, but has maybe gone into a a place in in their own self where they're once again maybe relying on their works to to feel right before you. God, I pray they wouldn't rely on their feelings and their own performance, but to realize that Christ said it is finished at the cross. And they look to that for joy and for strength. And for the unbeliever in this room today, if if you came today and you don't know God, you are under his wrath. You have sinned. But can I tell you there's freedom in Christ. There's forgiveness in Christ. You can be clean in Christ. Christ's righteousness can be given to you as a gift. Will you accept it today? He died for you, and he rose again so that one day you might join him in his kingdom. Will you do that today? Will you respond individually for a moment now? In a moment, we're going to respond corporately as well. If you have questions about what it means to trust Christ, let me encourage you to turn to your neighbor next to you or to come down to uh, Pastor Lewis or myself. We'll be down here to meet with you. We'd be delighted to share with you how you can begin this new relationship with Christ. If you are needing prayer for anything, any burdens you might be facing in your life, we'd be glad to pray with you down here at the front. And lastly, if you are not a member of a church and looking to join uh, the body of believers at Woodlong, we'd be, we'd be delighted to greet you at the front if you want to express interest in, in joining the body of Christ here at Woodlawn. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. That true faith for us is a matter of obedience from the heart. It's not just having knowledge. We thank you for the heart change you've given us. And pray that we walk faithfully in it so that we might display your name among the nations well, that we may not bring disrepute, dishonor to your name. Lord, we love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.